You are listening to The Stimulus Podcast. Yes, loving that funk. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. For those of you new to the show, and even if you're not so new, what we do is break down strategies, ideas, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Stimulus is a production of Orman Physician Coaching, where we help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, leadership challenges, maladaptive habits, and behaviors. Professional growth, personal development. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can find it all at our new website, roborman, R-O-B-O-R-M-A-N.com. That is also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode. Learn more about one-on-one coaching and where you can sign up for a free coaching discovery session. All right. On today's show, our guest, returning guest, actually, by popular demand, Dan Dworkis, MD, PhD, host of the Emergency Mind podcast and author of the Emergency Mind book, which gives just invaluable information to those who operate in arenas where knowledge under pressure is critical to success. Now, in this conversation, we focus on examples in medicine, since that's where Dan and I cut our chops, but the principles discussed here, including embracing uncertainty, powering down at the end of the day, effective team communication, how to recalibrate and re-engage when what you're doing isn't working, these things are applicable to many different fields where the pressure might be on. There is a lot in here that was just a little appetizer, so let's get to it. Our conversation with Dr. Dan Dworkis. I reached out because there was so much activity on social media about our last pod. Is thinking, all right, well, we need to dig deeper into this. And yeah, definitely. There is so much in education about how to do a recess, how to do sick patients, but not so much how to be, you know, mm. how to be, how to think, how to process. And I was going through a bunch of your old podcasts a few days ago and I was thinking, oh, these are all great tools and you're an emergency physician. And I'm so curious how your approach to resuscitation or stressful situation has changed since you started doing the emergency mind. It's changed a ton. And when I was first debating, should I start this project? Should I start doing a podcast? Should I start thinking about writing a book and sort of digging into this stuff? I spent a lot of time sort of digging around for other answers to these questions because I was really hoping that somebody else had already taken care of it and I could just read their book. <laughs> and like, and it, it didn't work out that way. It turns out that like, there really was a need to sort of dig deeper into this. And everybody that trains in emergency medicine, we all have our homegrown education around this kind of stuff because you have to learn it, right? It's so mission critical for what you're doing and you learn it in bits and pieces and maybe you learn it a little bit unconsciously. And I think it's a question of how do you draw best practices and reusable lessons and elevate this to where it's studied and worked on and practicing and perfecting and and doing all of that around this kind of an idea of applying knowledge under pressure. So yeah, I think my personal version of this has changed a ton. And even if you look back at like some of my first podcasts, you look at the questions I'm asking people, I'm asking questions about like, well, what do you do when you're right in the moment? And what do you do when things are going bad and you need to recover? And how do you take a pause in the center of putting a central line in? And that's because my entire focus was on that moment of performance. And the biggest, the single biggest thing that's changed for me after having spent time with world experts on performance under pressure across a variety of domains is understanding how much the moment of performance exists within a broader context. And how important that context is, both a personal context and then an environmental team and systems context. So previously, I would think of performance as its own thing. And now I think of it as a stage within a cycle, the cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve. And that circle works on the micro scale of like, I'm going to put a tube in. So I'm going to prepare to put that in. I'm going to consciously prepare. I'm going to do that skill. I'm going to step back from that skill and I'm going to learn from it. And then it applies at a broader sort of 20,000 foot view where I'm preparing for a shift, performing on a shift, recovering, and then trying to learn afterwards. And so, whereas before I was ultra focused on that moment, now I'm really spending a ton of my time and energy trying to work on the system that supports me. How do I get ready to do this? How do I recover from it? How do I learn from what I'm doing and get better at it? 
let's break down something that maybe you don't dread now or, or stress now, but used to. This is something where the wheels kind of come off, but you've taken the principle that you have applied, that you've learned in the podcast and write, researching the book and writing the book. What was that situation? And then how did you apply those core principles to evolving through that? I would imagine that this is a, a pretty rough thing for most people that do emergency care. But let's talk about the second time you try to intubate somebody. So you've already decided to intubate them. You've set yourself up, you have your plan, and it doesn't work. For whatever reason, you can't get the tube in the first time and their oxygen sats are dropping. And you're in this moment where you realize your first attempt didn't really cut it. And you're going to have to do something different. You're going to have to, within that one couple of seconds, diagnose a new problem that you didn't know existed, design a new solution to it, execute that solution, and recover the person from that hole that you've helped put them in in one form or another. That's a really high stress situation. Wherever you were when you started trying to intubate them, you are now there plus worse because they've had longer time without breathing. You've already sort of fumbled around in their airway a little bit. Maybe you've caused a little bit of trauma. Maybe there's a little bit of bleeding. And you now realize that you're farther towards bad things happening. To contextualize this, we know if we get too far down that line, we might end up in a failed airway where either the person will die or we have to achieve surgical front of neck access and cut their neck open. And those are really big, really bad things. Although we can talk about that decision-making process also. But that moment triggers everything. There's so much stress in that moment. It's a moment that I have continued to find myself in, whether I'm actually operating at that point, like whether I'm the operator or whether I am the supervising attending watching my team go through that moment and guiding them through that path. Now, when I take a step back, I try to contextualize a little bit more what's happening in me and what I can do to offset some of the stresses that emerge in that moment. To throw a couple examples out there, when we think about how we make decisions under pressure like that. Previously, my initial level understanding of it was I know I've got to move and I've got to make uh, a decision because making a decision is better than making no decisions and I've just got to start moving and make a decision. Um, so I would tend to flail a little bit in that moment. I'd be like, this isn't working. Get me another tube. Or, or I would go to some other default thing like, I need another blade. I need another angle. And I would pick something because picking something seemed to be better than doing nothing. And now you'll actually find me a lot more doing nothing. I will resist the urge just to act in any direction, and I will reflect for a second. I'll take a beat to prepare. I'll try to actually think to myself, what do I think is going wrong here? And what do I think I'm going to do about it? And I'll encourage my residents when they're doing this to try to tell me either during or after, what's your hypothesis about what went wrong? And then what are you going to do about it? Okay. The person's too anterior. All right. Let me try a reposition. Their epiglottis is too large. Let me try a different Mac blade. Okay. The airway is too small. Therefore, I will do this. And being able to identify what problem you're actually facing, to sit in that pocket of discomfort for another second to identify what you're facing really helps steer you towards the right direction. Also, now having studied more the idea of the role that breathing plays in controlling our physiologic response to stress, you'll often find me doing a, a physiologic sigh, which is something that Andrew Huberman talks about a lot. This like double inhale, exhale pattern, like <sighs> in that moment, which apparently triggers your vagus nerve and helps slow down your heartbeat and bring on board slower processing mechanisms in your brain. So I'll train myself to do that in that moment of stress and pressure. And I'll also try to be a lot more cognizant of the other people in the systems around me and calling out for what I think I might need next. So you'll see me sort of throwing my brain farther down in the future and saying, I think the problem is X team. I'm going to attempt Y. If that doesn't work, I'm going to need, you know, an oral airway and a LMA on backup. Can somebody get that ready for me? Right. So sort of like seeing the future a little bit and working backward. Like and that. you're saying that out loud. Out loud, exactly. And even to say out loud, folks, this is a challenging airway. My first attempt didn't work. I think that they're too anterior. I'm going to try repositioning using a Mac 3 instead of a Mac 4. If this doesn't work, our next move will be to bag them up and we're going to regroup at that point. Can I have on standby a video scope with a, a bougie? That's a very interesting moment right there. You describe this thinking out loud. And that is a uh, you know very powerful technique. And I think if you have 
an approach in mind to think out loud, that's great. If you don't, and you sort of you know think you're kind of like the jumbled mess in your brain, maybe not a great technique for team dynamics. Because one challenge, especially that learners have, is portraying confidence or portraying control of the situation, even though things might be going downhill. But I'm curious how you teach people, because I mean, you're doing this yourself and you're teaching people how to perform in these situations. Is there a particular skill or path on how to come across externally so that your team stays confident, your team stays with you and not just like, okay, this guy's, you know, shit show, nothing going on here. I think you're asking a question, the the answer to which gets us into how do you build a high-functioning culture? Mm-hmm. Because part of my answer about what you do in that moment to acknowledge your difficulty, your barriers to success, and do that in a way that galvanizes the team around you as opposed to splits them up, part of the answer to that really has to do with what did you do the day before? Mm. What did you do the hour before, which is the parallel to prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, right? So if I'm a person who tends to fly off the handle and gets really frustrated and shuts down my nursing staff and ignores my respiratory therapists and basically says, I'm in this alone, screw you guys, and I'm the operator and things aren't going well, and all of a sudden I need help, I need ideas, I need backup, I need people to call anesthesia, whatever it is, right? that moment is going to be really hard to do well. Already the deck is stacked against me. People don't really like me. They're frustrated at me and they're like, oh, this guy again, look at him flop. right? But if I'm the type of person that says, hey, we're in this together. All of us are in this together to work on this patient, to help this patient. I'm going to be the one doing this part, but I need everybody else on board and I need second sets of eyes and I need other ideas. We can talk about how to do that in a second because I think there's something I've learned that I do differently in the timeout now that I didn't used to that really empowers this idea. But it's a lot about how have you done this over the weeks and months before this? Have you built up a culture and a team that believes that you're there for the best interest of the patient? Because then if you are, then you can get in a moment where you're like, guys, I'm not perfect. I'm stuck in a hole here. Does anybody see something that I don't? Who's got ideas? Because I'm stuck. And that's not a sign of weakness or of incompetence or of difficulty in leadership. If you've structured it the right way and built a successful, high-performing culture around you and in your team. I want to get into how you have shifted in this situation. I think about how I evolved over 20 years. And there was, in the beginning, it was all in my head. And years, probably 12 through 20, in a recess, or even if the ED was busy, when there was moment to breathe, I'd have a chalk talk. And sometimes I do this on paper, sometimes I do it on the whiteboard. And I was just talking with the doctor the other day where they do it on their windows in the, in the bay. Oh, that's cool. If you have a complex trauma or where there's multiple injuries and multiple procedures, would go to the whiteboard and say, here's what I see here. And I would just essentially give like a little talk. This system, this system, this system, here's the action, here's the action, here's the action. Here's what mm-hmm. I think the priorities are. What am I missing? What are other ideas? And bring the team on and see what their ideas are so that we're all on the same page and then prioritize and kind of divvy out actions on who does what so that we have a team meeting. Now, granted, the challenge is keeping that great culture of somebody kind of throws out, I wouldn't say a boneheaded idea, but something that you don't really want to do. Like, okay, let's table that. Thank you for your input or table that and see how things go. But, you know, reviewing and empowering, delegating, prioritizing, bringing everybody into the same conversation. So it's not in your head. That was, I mean, it's a simple thing. It's almost free because you can do it on a piece of paper with a pen or a chalk talk. But that was a huge change. That was like a personal culture change. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly powerful. And the more that we are able to do that, the more that we're able to harness the the wisdom of all the people around us and force multiply all of our brains onto this mm-hmm. one same problem. I also think that's crucially important for ER doctors or other people that are leading a team where they're the only one with that skill set there. So if you're operating out of a shop where you are the only doctor in the hospital, 
you cannot possibly do that well if you sort of pretend that you're the only human there. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't work. And the number of times that I've worked in places where I'm the only doctor for whatever period of time, or maybe there's a hospitalist somewhere else in the hospital mm-hmm. that doesn't come down to the ER, but you live or die with your team in those moments. And your ability to work together to create an instance where you're all operating on the same problem in the same shared mental model and where you're all helping each other get better, where you have this common sense of purpose and passion about it, man, that's magic when that works. That feels so good. I I try to think about it sometimes like leave no trace camping. You know, like leave no trace emergency medicine, right? The (laughs) principles are that you walk into a space. And when I walk out at the end of my shift, I want not just the patients, but the hospital and the physical space and the team, I want them to be better for me having been there. Mm. That's part of my sense of victory when I walk in and I I leave a shift. And And I consciously think that I try to like nudge little things in various directions. But great example is we had a squeaky door the other day. It was a really annoying squeaky door. And part of our leave no trace, make the world better program for that day was to summon up a can of WD-40 and fix it. <laughs> and we left, we took care of a lot of patients. We did a lot of really good medicine and yeah. we fixed that squeaky door. And so we keep the can of WD-40 around in the ER now to think about that. And that's kind of ridiculous. Like it's funny to be like so excited about fixing a squeaky door, who the hell cares in some, in some reason. But I, I really believe that part of doing this is that if you took two resuscitation teams and you took one that said, ugh, this damn squeaky door again, and ignored it and just sat on it. And you took another one that said, yeah, this is a small thing I'm going to make better because I have a culture of making small things better because I believe this place will be better for me having been here. I think over time, that team, the WD-40 team will outperform the complaining team at resuscitation. That's agency. I mean, when you act with agency and you come from a perspective of agency, you're batting average is just going to be better. You're going to whiff some, but everyone will be better around you. And when you talk about that squeaky door, have you ever heard of the drama triangle? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was Shane Parrish's podcast that just came out not too long ago that had a great explanation of the drama triangle. Okay. So victim, villain, and hero. Right. Victim, villain, and hero. And when you get sucked into a situation, you're often one of these three things, a victim, villain, or hero. Victim, I would say more like aggressor, because it's hard to say like, I'm the (laughs) villain here. But so often in medicine, we sort of get to be hero and we have this hero perspective, which actually has its own pitfalls. We've got a show coming up talking about the challenges of speaking from the hero perspective and how that negatively impacts patients, but so often see ourselves as the victim, the victim of administration, the victim of crappy infrastructure, the victim of these crappy systems. The secret is to get outside of it and be nothing. Be your own agent. A very long thought on the squeaky door is be none. You are none. You are someone with agency who is neither hero, victim, nor villain. It's also so easy to see things in black and white. It's so easy to see, oh, there's nothing here I can fix. The problems are insurmountable. And it's easy to get lost in a hole like that and just sort of stop trying, especially lately with very large challenges that we're facing that aren't necessarily totally fixable over the course of a shift. And they're certainly not even fixable in in a longer scale timeframe without significant resources. But to say that that's true, to take a black and white, all or none version of that ignores a lot of things that we actually do have the ability to make better. And so I've started surreptitiously posting around the ER, these little notes, little reminders about how can you get 1% better today at something? How can you make something better than when you found it? Because I think that allowing yourself a gradient in between black and white, the gradient to have the space to acknowledge, yeah, things are really hard. And I'm going to go do this small thing about it because I'm going to try to leave things a little bit better than when I found them. That's so empowering. And I can't prove it, but I think over time that'll make us perform better in resuscitation. Because I think we're going to start getting used to looking for ways to get better. And we're going to get used to looking for things we can improve. And we're going to have the vision and the belief that we are a team that makes things better. Every great journey, baby, begins with the first step, squeaky door. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now you may have just gotten to that with the post-it notes of how can we get 1% better. But when you were talking before of something that you've started doing when we were getting into 
you know, managing these situations, you had started to say something and I, I took us in a different direction. Was there something else you had to add to that? Oh yeah. I've started to get really fascinated by the whole field of behavioral economics and the way that our brains tend to fall in certain patterns. And so one thing that we learned from that whole field is how we're more or less inclined to speak up or speak against a dominant theme at certain points in time. And so when we're in the middle of a high pressure situation, we're less likely to want to speak up. When there's a really large power gradient, we're less likely to speak up. And when we are not feeling psychologically safe, to summarize all of that, we're less likely to speak up, even though we might have important, useful information. And I think about a case when I was a third-year med student, I was just starting to absorb on the wards and I happened to be invited in to watch uh, cardiac catheterization happening from like behind a screen. And I watched them take out the wire and I watched the wire break out of part of the sterile field and touch the table and nobody saw it. And I remember having this incredible internal, like, oh my God, I think this wire just broke the sterile field. I think I'm supposed to say something about this. I don't know. Like everybody yells at me when I say things, what am I supposed to do? How do I convey this important information? And it was just this terrible turmoil. And I ended up tugging on the sleeve of somebody near me and being like, excuse me, like a I think this thing happened. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> You're like, you know, I'd already finished my PhD by that point, but that's sort of irrelevant. I still had the mindset of like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. I need some help. I need an adult. And you know, they were able to move it up the chain of command, and and they actually ended up not using that wire, thankfully, and getting another one and and, and whatever. But the point is that when we're not feeling psychologically safe, we're less likely to contribute usable ideas to a conversation, especially when those ideas go against the grain of what's happening. So one of the things I've taken from the people that I've interviewed, and this comes not only from folks like Annie Duke, but also from folks like David Marquet, who's a former nuclear submarine captain and talks about how he has fallen in some of these pit holes himself, is when I'm doing a timeout before we start doing something, I used to say, everybody good, like thumbs up, look around and everybody's like, great, we're ready. And you know, that's like, okay, but it, it has the same problem that I just talked about. It doesn't give people the space to really talk unless they already know me and they already trust me. And hopefully I've done the prepare work before that moment to help them understand that I want to hear from them, but maybe I haven't, maybe they don't know me. Maybe I'm new. Maybe I'm operating in a cross-functional team, cross-disciplinary team where nobody knows me. So how do I create a circumstance in those moments where people are likely to feel psychological safety, to understand what I'm looking for, and to deliver usable information to me when I need it the most? So I've flipped that question a little bit. And at the end of my timeout, before I do something, I know I'll go around the room and look in everybody's eyes and say, does anybody see a reason why this is unsafe, why we should slow down, or why we should not do this procedure right now? And I look around the room and basically end with, okay, seeing none, I see nothing that's a no, that makes it a yes, let's go. And then we do it. And I've already done my internal checks and I've already done everything about that. But that option to ask for disconfirming evidence, I want things I don't see. Tell me where I'm wrong. Help me understand how I'm broken. What do I not see that you do? Man, that's a big step forward in terms of getting that psychological safety in place and getting people able to speak up. Wow. That, I'm getting chills just thinking about that because I hadn't even thought about that. It's so lacking in that moment. It goes back to that uh, KLM crash years ago when the co-pilot knew that things were going bad, but because of the power dynamic, I, I can remember, like didn't say anything or there wasn't the proper communication to say, hey, this isn't safe. Things are going off the rail. Plane crashed. I mean, people died. Plane crashed. And it's just there wasn't that psychological safety to say. And so you are actively dissolving that barrier by saying it in the way that you said it and then pointing out the individuals to say, okay, it's your turn. If you want to talk, here you go. Here's your space. You don't actually even have to you know, speak up at a turn out of this group. Yeah. And if I'm on top of it, I'm, I'm looking at them. And even if they don't say anything, if they look uneasy, yeah. I'm like, what's up? What do you think? Yeah. Right. Help me understand this. So an even slightly more nuanced version of this. And I'm, I've been experimenting with this, but I haven't really brought it to full practice yet because I'm still finding a couple of pieces of resistance to it. This comes from David Marquet, who talks about, he calls it fist to five, right? So when he has an idea and he says, for example, in his universe, okay, team, we're going to turn the submarine 30 degrees to port and we're going to do this maneuver. Or in our world, when I say, okay, I think we need to intubate this patient for airway protection. Here's our plan. He calls that almost like the captain's intent version of it. I intend to do X. Okay. 
this is my plan. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what I think we're going to do. All right, real quick, fist to five, what do we think? And then he asks everybody in the room, everybody as part of the team to hold their hand up and give a number of fingers. Okay. So five fingers is full go ahead. Love this plan. Let's rock and roll. Fist or zero fingers is full stop. This is a terrible, terrible idea. People will catch on fire. Lightning bolts will rain from the heavens. And some number of fingers between fist to five expresses some amount of certainty or uncertainty, doubt or progress about what you think is about to happen. And you get several pieces of information from that. So first, you get a quick snapshot of the temperature check of everybody in the room, and you see a diversity of opinions. You might see some people that have two fingers, some that have three fingers up, some that have nothing. And you're able to retroactively piece together, wow, there's a lot of different viewpoints about what's happening here. And the heterogeneity is itself a signal, which is really interesting. Why do all the people have different understandings about what's happening? What have we not communicated effectively about what the shared mental model of the team here is? Who knows something that I don't? The other thing is we talked a minute ago about black and white and that whole idea of psychological safety. If you have to go from yes to no, man, that's a big jump. That's a hard jump from a psychological safety perspective. If all I have to do is hold up four fingers instead of five fingers, to express some uncertainty about what's happening, that's a lot safer of a thing to do, especially when I'm asked to hold up a number of fingers between zero and five. And again, what I'm doing as a leader here, what Marquet talks about, what I am working on doing is trying to create a culture that allows the best things to happen naturally, that removes obstacles, that understands how people's brains work under pressure and creates environments where they're able to deliver their best self and their best care. You don't try to fight it. You don't be like, do better, be more psychologically safe. No, (laughs) you create structures that allow that to happen naturally and to come up as a groundswell. Take a break and talk about today's sponsor. Yeah, today's episode is sponsored by Wild Health. Wild Health is the gold standard of precision medicine. They take your genetics, your unique makeup, your history, your goals to design tailored health strategies. I have been through the Wild Health program. It's a pretty incredible process, frankly. Had some dietary and exercise recalibration myself. Feel great. And a question that often comes up when you're talking about this stuff, precision medicine, is does it work? It's a great idea, but what does the data show? All right. So the folks at Wild Health sent me an analysis of two years worth of labs for over 2,000 of their patients. And what they found is that markers of cardiovascular disease diabetes and inflammation were improved across the board. All right, so that's good, but handily more so than other industry leaders, sometimes by twofold. That is shocking. And for a limited time, you can get 30% off the monthly subscription to Wild Health. 30% off. Who does that? Use the code GET30, G-E-T-3-0. By the end of the month, when you sign up at wildhealth.com. That is GET30. And If you're interested in incorporating this into your practice or perhaps even pursuing a new area of medicine, they offer a fellowship, which you can also find on their website. But the focus of this particular ad is, man, I just can't believe they're doing this. 30% off monthly. Get 30. Get some at wildhealth.com. Now back to our conversation. I want to tap into your experience and brain a little bit more doing this with trainees and you've got a very sophisticated construct for doing these things and you're continually evolving them. When you go back to see somebody, maybe who's fresh out of med school or first, second, third, fourth year of of residency before they're out on their own in attending hood, which trainees, let me say your first year of attending hood is your fellowship in clinical emergency medicine. You're actually figuring out how to do the job on your own. So I'm still figuring that out. Yeah, right. It's iterative until you retire. Let me Mm. (laughs) tell you straight out. But back to the trainees, where do you see them go off the rails or really struggle when it comes to knowledge under pressure? I think there are predictable things and unpredictable things. 
to answer that question. Like if you think about, uh, let's take the vantage point of cognitive load theory. You have the amount of things you're able to do at a given moment and your brain experiences load as you're trying to do something. And you can think about it like electrical load or sort of resistance to action. And it's split into a variety of different forms. It's intrinsic cognitive load, which is the cognitive load devoted to doing the task at hand, like putting the central line in. Extraneous cognitive load, which is the extra cognitive load of having noises or people screaming or stuff like that. And then germane cognitive load, which is the energy it takes to take experiences and build what are called schema out of them, or sort of the, the muscle memory or the, the internal structures that represent that in your brain. So I often see, and it's rather predictable to see trainees struggling when there are high levels of extraneous things going on, high levels of lots of things that are unrelated to the task at hand. So your task is put in a central line. And while you're putting in that central line, there are three naked patients running across the front and a wave of security guards chasing them, trying to bring them back to the room and they crash into the room and they're knocking things over. Oh my gosh. Do we have a great graphic to put on this podcast? (laughs) There you you go, right? There you go. That's a moment where the level of mental effort that you're expending spikes Mm -hmm. and everybody's mental effort spikes. But if the task at hand is already hard for you because you haven't done it that many times and you have this spike on top of it, you're more likely to hit overload. So that gets back to the whole idea we talked about the last time we were together about applying gradual pressure and using wedge practice. Because if you are able to train a skill and employ it under low wedge conditions, things that are easy where there's not a lot of other things going on, you have a better success rate at at getting it done. Another way to think about that, a really simplistic and probably not entirely true way, but it gets the job done, is that every decision costs you sugar and you only have so much sugar. Every time you decide something, it burns sugar in your brain. This is probably not exactly true, but whatever. And if you are beginning, every decision costs you an enormous amount of sugar because you don't really understand if it's an important decision or not. How many times has a trainee come up and asked, oh my God, is it six days of antibiotics or seven days of antibiotics? Is it seven days or eight days of antibiotics? And they are struggling trying to understand what the right answer to this is, Mm -hmm. to which like, there's probably no right answer. It just probably doesn't matter most of the time. And as you get more expert in a system, you start recognizing which decisions you can delegate to low priority where you don't have to make them. And you can save your sugar for the decisions that matter the most. What is your favorite book on cognitive load theory? The one that sort of got me over the hump from not at all understanding it to sort of barely understanding it, which is where I might qualify myself right now. It's just called Sweller's Cognitive Load Theory. And it's a book written by a high school math teacher for high school math teachers. And that's where a lot of like the cognitive load theory sort of originated is around how people learn things like math, for instance. But it's really interesting and has a lot to do with sort of what we're doing. There's also a really, really brilliant ER doctor, Adam Shlevsky, who was on my podcast, who did a great job explaining this and has published a variety of papers dealing with cognitive load and resuscitation. I think when we're talking about not only trainees, but people throughout their career, task saturation, that's a kind of a common parlance in the emergency department for you are cognitively overloaded. And then what can happen is you sort of naturally can have this like bespoke approach to whatever it is like, oh, I'll just kind of figure it out as it goes along versus building structure around it. Here is exactly how I approach my ED shift every time because I know that I'm going to get overloaded. So I need to put systems in place to take that aspect out of it. It's going to be busy. It's going to be busy every time. I can't control that. I can control how I approach that business. I can say every hour, I'm going to run the board with a charge nurse and we're going to prioritize tasks. Every X, I'm going to do Y. So I don't have to think about it and come out of my room. It's like, oh my God, I got all these patients to see, all these priorities. It's like, no structure. I got a structure for this. I don't know if that's reducing friction, but it's uh, burning less sugar. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think that we're we're getting at here a little bit of don't fight the way that human brains are designed. Try to improve on it, but also try to create structure that supports you when you need it the most. Accept your own fallibility as a human and design structures, cultures, and teams that support you. This is the logic that we have behind designing the very popular Swiss cheese model of of error reduction. We believe that nothing is perfect. And rather than demanding that everything be perfect, we design a system that supports imperfections and, and rough edges around things and allows us instead to build further. I want to switch gears. And I'm curious as to what is your current 
post-shift routine? And why do you do it that way? You know, that's an area of really active experimentation and inquiry for me. I don't think I have a perfect answer to that. Slight sidebar before we go into this. I think you asked earlier, where do you see trainees having issues with performance under pressure? One way that we can get better at that is by expressing clearly, coherently, and in front of people that we are works in progress, Mm -hmm. that there's not a finished thing, that you don't go through residency and then suddenly you're perfect at handling everything. Instead, that you are, as an attending, as a senior, as a leader, continuing to work on yourself and evolve yourself. And, And I think that's part of the antidote to some of the fear that comes with performance under pressure. If you're constantly held to an impossible standard, then you're going to be afraid of not making it. So one thing that I try to do is to express when I am uncertain, express when I don't know the answer and express what I'm working on and what I'm struggling with. So in that vein, I am challenged by what a great way to come home successfully from a shift is. There's some things that I tend to deploy every time, which is I tend to park far away from where I walk in so that I am forced to walk over this bridge. And the bridge has all these interesting sort of beams and pillars on it. And I've been developing this visualization where as I walk through, I imagine the beams of the bridge sort of stripping some of the residue off of me. And that's my first start. And I don't look at my phone. I don't talk to anybody. I don't do anything until I'm through that bridge. It's only a couple seconds, but it sort of got me part of the way through what I'm doing like that. I've been experimenting with changing things around how I sleep, how I shut down at the end of the night, Mm -hmm. how I run a bit of a power down cycle, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, Yeah, yeah, because I don't think it works necessarily to just drop, to go (laughs) until you drop and then drop. Like There's probably a better sense of powering down that helps you do it successfully. And there's some research that I've been reading that seems to support that about how we set ourselves up to sleep well and to recover well. I also think that things don't happen in a vacuum. So prepare and recover are two sides of a coin. How I'm setting myself up matters greatly for what I can do and also how I can recover from what I'm doing. So can I make good choices throughout the day before the shift that allows me to continue to make good choices after the shift? I'm just kind of struck by that term power down. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's also something I've struggled with for many years. I struggled with it throughout my career and still struggle with it, doing a different sort of work. It's not in the ED, but it's still very cognitively intense. So at the end of the day, there's a lot of buzzing. And it's mm-hmm. and so I've been probably working on this for about four years. And I, I love that you're talking about that it's all iterative. You, know? you are mm-hmm. constantly changing. Sure. We are all constantly changing. I love that you said that and normalize that with the learners. That's so empowering because you have this sense that you need to project infallibility and instructability and badassitude. There's that term Bafford, which can be empowering, like badass F and ER doctor. People are like, I'm a Bafford. It's like, yeah, you know what? I've I've literally never heard that before. (laughs) I have a friend who's got that as her license plate and she is a Bafford. But it's like, you know what? (laughs) You're still figuring stuff out. So, um, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not, that's not just us. I mean, that, that's common across every high performing group that I've worked with or studied. When you get to the point where you're really elite, you don't really have an ego about this stuff anymore. Yeah. It's a lot more of like, yeah, I'm just trying to figure this out and trying to get better. And that's my real question. How do I get better tomorrow than I am today? This, um, power down think, uh, thinking about how, mm-hmm. how to get better. So it, it initially started out with this super elaborate really long, long form thing and stripped it down to maybe a minute of parasympathetic breathing. You're talking about Huberman's sigh breathing or, so I do um, like a a triangle breathe as a little parasympathetic, then a little body scan, mindfulness meditation, just to come to center. And then a sequential kind of high visualization fidelity review of the day in sequence what happened and what are the moments of gratitude from that? What were moments of a little bit of joy and silliness? And if I find myself laughing or like just smiling, just spontaneous smiling, like I know I've hit it. I know I've hit it. And I try to do it outside. And right now we're recording this in winter. It's like 20 degrees outside at night. So I'm all bundled up, but I just, I find that the air outside and just being outside sets a different mental set point. And when I actually do it, I find I always wake up in the middle of the night to what, you know, to when, when I'm sleeping. But when I do it, I don't have that 
kind of mental detritus that's left over from the day. It's like, that's all been processed. I mean, it's like doing the morning pages first thing in the morning. You just write four pages of stream of consciousness. So that end of the day process of first parasympathetic breathing, then mindfulness meditation, then that sequential walkthrough with the pulling out the gratitude, evoking the gratitude. For me, that's, I mean, that's my current technique for powering down. I've found it pretty effective. That's really cool. I think there's two things that are really important to say about that. One is that there's like probably some average answers for most people that we can learn from science. We're pretty good at generating average answers for humans. Most of the time, if your blood pressure is high, it should be lower. Great. <laughs> right? like, okay. What we're not at all particularly good at is mapping large scale answers to individual people from a scientific or medical point of view. I just don't think we're that good at that. So what's good for you and how you power down should probably be informed by what research says is good for most people, but then has to be experimented and iterated on by yourself. Because I don't think that we're going to get you to that last point or to the edge of where you want to be is probably a better way to say that without a lot of experimentation and tinkering on yourself. The other thing that I think is so crucial to say is that it's so easy for this to devolve into one more thing you got to do. Like, yeah. not only do you have to get through your shift and do all this stuff, but now you have to power down in a right way. And if you're not doing that well, then, oh my God, you're failing at that. You're failing at life. And this is happening. It just cascades. And sometimes you got to realize that there's like a fire going on. And the only thing you have to do is not pour gas on it. Mm. Just don't pour gas on it. And that that's victory that day. You know what? I had a totally horrific thing the other day on a shift. And I knew when I got in my car and I went home, this is going to hit me like a ton of bricks. And it did. And it has. And, you know, some days all you can do is not pour gas in the fire. And that's okay. And I think we can trade techniques and talk about ideals, but this is a hard thing that we do. And if you're listening to this and you're at a point where what you are doing is not pouring gas on a fire, you are doing the work. That is good. So what would be an example of pouring gas on the fire? Yeah, that, that's, that's like fairly easy to deconstruct. Imagine what you would do if you were like, I really want to screw myself for tomorrow. <laughs> right? What would you do? You could pick a bunch of things that would really screw you over for tomorrow. That's easy. Like pouring gas on the fire is in some sense doing that. This isn't a term I invented. This comes from the Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, who talks about in general, when we are caught up in an emotionally charged situation, or when we are experiencing a great deal of what in her terminology would be shenpa, the idea of being hooked by a situation or, or a feeling, it's easy to throw gas on that. I'm a little mad. I'm a little frustrated. I'm feeling hurt and vulnerable. And so I'm responding to that by generating some anger. And you know what? I'm going to burn this place down. I am just going to explode into that anger and throw things and break things and blame people around me and just fly off the handle about it. That's pouring gas on that fire. And sometimes you can't practice, you know, I'm going to take all this deep breathing and I'm going to transform my feelings and I'm going to transform my life and I'm going to realign the universe to understand yeah. the depth of joy around this experience and be grateful for it. Sometimes that's not available. That's right. just, at least for me, I am not enlightened enough for that to be available. But I think not pouring gas in the fire is a really wonderful and really underused answer to these hard situations. Whether you're talking about powering down well or getting through a shift or trying to make it through anything in your life, like that's victory. It doesn't always look the same, but that's victory. I want to get back to something that you had said earlier about uncertainty. When there is uncertainty in a high-pressure situation, it can pull you away from algorithmic thinking. It does pull you away from algorithmic thinking. We love algorithmic thinking. We love decision tools and online calculators and, you know, like the truly comfortable binary decision. And when it's ambiguous and developing, we fall out of the algorithm because there is no algorithm. Maybe there's like a heuristic, but you're kind of in the realm of just relying on your own wits. And you have a chapter in your book titled Algorithmic versus Creative Thinking. And these situations where you feel like you're in uncharted water, talking about clinical medicine, they're often creative you know, I mean, you wouldn't think that medicine is creative, but I think that's the best way to describe it. And 
I'm curious your thoughts on how do you know you're at that point and how do you communicate that you're in creative space, both to yourself and your team? Well, that second question is actually really interesting. How do, how do I communicate how I'm doing that? I'm not sure. I, I think when I'm doing well at my job and we're in a high pressure moment, I'm doing a good job communicating my vision of reality to the team. And that doesn't happen all the time. It's not a steady stream of chatter. It's usually syncopated like, all right, here's my hypothesis. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I think the plan is going to be. Here's a couple of branch points I'm worried about. There's maybe a landmine over there that we should watch out for. And in doing so, I'm exposing what I'm thinking and sort of how I'm going about it. And I, I try to be really honest when I'm running an experiment versus when I really expect something to work. And I think that like being clear about, okay, we're in a space where we understand it pretty well. I think we're going to use the tools that we have designed to work in this case. Or guys, there's a lot of uncertainty going on here. I think it's this. There's a chance it's this. Let's be really, 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 really on the lookout for things that tell us we're pointing in the wrong direction here. They might look like this. And then you get sort of this burst of insight kind of mode. And there's this great book, Seeing What Others Don't from Gary Klein that talks about the science and the, the background of how humans generate insights and these moments of creative leaps between ideas. And I think that I probably don't do a very good job at calling out, all right, we're going to really need to think creatively here about this. Occasionally I do. A great example of doing this is when I'm stuck. So we're in a code and uh, cardiac arrest situation and things aren't going well, and we're maybe pretty far in and it's just not turning around. So there will be a moment when I'm running it, when I will say something like, okay, folks, our first several waves of actions have not solved this problem. I'm still not sure what the driving force here is. It could be this or this. Here's what we've done. I'm running out of ideas. I need everybody else to think with me here. We're going to take this next cycle of CPR, and I want everybody to think to themselves, what else might we be missing? What other ideas are out there? This is our chance to bring whatever knowledge we have to this person. And we'll reconvene at this next pulse check and see what we've come up with and sort of get that charge mm. out there for it. So that's an example of saying, hey, it's time to think creatively because the algorithms haven't done it for us. Now we got to really like put on an afterburner here for this person. I think I've also, this isn't a direct answer to algorithmic versus creative thinking, but it is to uncertainty. I think I've gotten a lot more conscious about exploring the shape of uncertainty and not being satisfied just saying, I am uncertain, although, although that's important too. So there, I think there's a lot of times when we're faced with uncertainty and we take it at face value and say, hey, I don't know what's going on. But really, we probably know some things about what's going on. So maybe we don't know the answer, but we know that it's probably over here somewhere. We think that it's probably one of these two or three things, or we don't know the answer, but we can predict that if we had to guess, we're more likely to be wrong in a certain direction. And the consequence is likely to be big or small. And putting those things on the map, you can sketch out, well, you can't really see the mountain in front of you. You can see the shape that it might take or the shape of the negative space around it or something to give you a clue that maybe you're pointing in the right direction. And I've been trying to be a lot more conscious about doing that with my teams and helping, helping to use that shadow knowledge, shadow uncertainty, whatever cool word I can come up with on the spot here for it, like to help us make decisions in that circumstance. And I guess as a concrete example of that, so we had a discussion the other day about whether or not this particular patient had uh, cellulitis and should we prescribe an antibiotic? And the person for various reasons was really not letting us do anything more than a very cursory exam. So there wasn't a lot of our normal tools and we basically had one person's description of what it looked like, which was all we had to go on about whether or not we were going to prescribe this person antibiotics and they had cellulitis. And we're going to ignore for a second how we got there and why that situation existed. That situation just existed and we're sort of in there. And that's not, that's not a super uncommon situation, right? Like maybe that exact hand of cards is a little bit weird, but these situations where you have imperfect information and you need to make a decision on it and you really can't get anything more without great cost, that happens quite a bit. So we went through this thought process about, okay, do we think it's cellulitis? Yes or no. Now, which way do we think we're likely to be wrong? Are we likely to overestimate cellulitis or underestimate cellulitis? Mm. 
And we came to the conclusion that based on this person's, the the tone and color of this person's skin, we were probably likely to undercall it from our exam. Okay. So if we think it's this and we're likely to undercall it, then we need to mentally adjust our estimate of what's happening. And then we thought about, okay, well, what's the, what's the cost of being right or wrong for this decision? And we sort of went through a matrix of what would the cost be of giving antibiotics when it wasn't indicated? Maybe we'd give the person some diarrhea and create a little bit of bacterial resistance and things like this. And what's the cost of being wrong if we don't give her antibiotics and she needed it? And we ended up identifying like, well, this probably isn't a person that's likely to seek medical care again anytime in the near future. And we think that it probably took this person a great deal of effort mentally to come in. And I don't think that they're likely to come back. And where it is, they might not see it. And there's all these things that make us think that if we don't do that, the chance of being wrong from that perspective is likely a high risk. And so, well, do I know it's cellulitis? No. But I think I'm likely to undercall it. And I think the risk of not prescribing is relatively high for this individual. And so using that, we back-ended into the decision of giving antibiotics. I don't think that works all the time, but I think if we either A, demand certainty when we can't have it before we act, or B, are scared of sitting in uncertainty and unwilling to explore the edges of it, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice and our patients probably. Well, I want to close out with a recommendation from you on your own show, The Emergency Mind, to those who are uninitiated. As I said before, it examines knowledge and performance under pressure, which we've been talking about this this entire podcast. If someone's going to start with a single episode, not that you don't love them all, not that you're not not all not all your babies, yeah, totally. but where should they start? And listeners, whatever comes out of Dan's mouth, we will link to in the show notes to take you over to his website. Oh yeah, I think if you want to dig more into how teams and systems work, then you probably want to listen to the episode with Arena Labs which is a really interesting group that does a lot of work about human performance in medicine under pressure. If you want to get more into the performance recovery and preparation stuff that we talked about, then I would definitely listen to the episode with Kristen Holmes, who's the vice president of performance for Whoop, because she just drops like gem after gem about how your decisions when you're off make such a difference to what you can do when you're on. I cheated and did too. I love you. Hey, you know what, man? It was uh, it was your space. <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll leave them both in there. How about episodes one through 57? I mean, you know. We'll say that. All right, Len, listeners, if you uh, want to check out Dan's book, you can check out that out on his website as well. We'll link to it on our own show notes too. Actually, I pick it up from time to time to just say like, oh, I need to navigate this particular situation. And when I first got it, I was like, oh, you know, I'll read this all the way through, but I found it to be more impactful personally, reading it just almost randomly opening up like, oh, this looks interesting and just, and taking in a short burst because there's a lot of proscriptive things in there. And if you try to internalize everything, you'll internalize nothing. So I kind of take it in small bites. Yeah, totally. And it's designed in such a way that the end of every section leads you to a couple of other possible sections it's linked to. So you can follow a random path through it. You certainly don't have to start at the beginning of it. Choose your own adventure, baby. Exactly. (laughs) Dan, always a delight. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes to subscribe to our newsletter or learn more about our coaching program, You can find all that and more at roborman.com. And if you dig the show, hit the subscribe button in your podcatcher so you don't have to use that vital brain space to remember to download a new one. It'll just pop right up there like a jack-in-the-box. Ooh, maybe not jack-in-the-box. They can get kind of scary. Pop up like a tulip in the springtime. And until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.